All right, Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Westside. I am honored and privileged and excited to be back in the pulpit uh, this morning, and I'm also excited to have this thing, right? We almost had to run this whiteboard a while ago, but uh, Lance got it lined out. I love whiteboards, but you won't see me use it today. We've just got a cool sign on the back that I'm going to flip at some point. Uh, Jason can't spell, so that's why he doesn't use them. I don't use them because you can't read my writing, so we've got that going for us. So here in a minute, we're going to dive into that. So we are starting a new series. Tyler introduced it last week on the axioms. So the axioms are seven rules, seven axioms that we've been going through as a leadership, me, Jason, and Tyler, with gravity leadership. Um, these things that we've been learning to see the world as. And now, if you're not familiar with axioms that, that, that Tyler introduced last week, they're this. An axiom is a self-evident and necessary truth. A proposition whose truth is so evident that at first sight, no reasoning or demonstration can make it plainer. It's something very basic, because when you hear it, you're like, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. Duh, right? So it, something like this, something we take for granted, the whole is greater than the part. A thing cannot at the same time both be and not be. Those are examples of axioms. You may have heard those in the past. But they're not just something that's as simple as a cliche, right? A cliche is a way that we trivialize something or we make fun of something. Those are what cliches kind of do. An axiom is also this. It's a base rule. It's something that is like the ground of being. It's the basic building blocks of anything that is built on top of it. So it's a rule from which further knowledge or experience is built. And in this, this series, we're looking at seven axioms. And what we understand of these seven axioms is that when we read the New Testament, and we specifically look at Jesus' life and the things that he taught and the way he lived and the way he worked around people, is that this is kind of like the lens that Jesus viewed the world through. So if we were to pick up Jesus' glasses and we were going to look and see how he viewed God working in the world, these are the seven basic things that kind of undergird all of Jesus' work and all the disciples' work. And it's fundamentally about this. If at any point that we miss these seven axioms, or we don't understand them, or we ignore them, or we live, most importantly, as if they aren't true, discipleship is going to be very frustrating for us. Following Jesus is going to be 
difficult. It's not going to make sense. It's not going to be something that we think is practical or relevant to our life. These seven axioms undergird what it means to be a disciple. Here's the problem, right? How do I follow a God that I can't see? How do I follow a God that seems so distant? How do I follow a God that seems like he's not here when I need him? Something, we, we often understand this or want it to be something dramatic, like following Jesus or an experience with God has to be this something far away and removed and dramatic that invades our life and shakes us up. It's like, okay, here I am, I've showed up. And that's not necessarily what discipleship's like, because that, that's not necessarily how God works. So our first axiom this morning gets at that. But before we dive into that, there's something that kind of, it's kind of a flip side to it. God is holy. God is transcendent. And we, as kind of part of our being as humanity, have always kind of understood this. And so at any point, pre-Christian or not, that, you, that humanity decided that they wanted to convene with God, to meet with God, they'd build temples. And where would they build these temples? They would go up on a high hill somewhere with it where they thought was closer to God because God was up there. God is removed. God is holy. God is transcendent. God is other. God is removed from us. So we got to go somewhere high and build something grand to meet with God, right? So in our Genesis passage where Jacob uh, uh, meets with God and sees God in this dream and where he gets up and later just right after that builds a, a little uh, a monument to God, a, a place where he can meet, that's actually the Temple Mount. That's what we understand later, where the temple will be built that God commands. And then at the Areopagus, where is she? She's left. The Areopagus, right, where we're here, here in Athens. This is right the hill next to it. This is actually on the Acropolis is the name of this mountain, and that's the Parthenon, right? Uh, right down the street from where uh, 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 Peter would have been talking to people in our Acts passage. This is somewhere that's up on a hill. That's kind of the quintessential temple of the ancient times, up high and removed because God is holy and he's removed and he's transcendent and he's something other. And we have to attain to God. Now look, especially in the, in the sense of the temple. Well, let me show you this other one. This is uh, St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. I had a, the privilege of getting to visit here about five years ago. That's the high altar. Right in the center of that is a piece of stained glass that's a dove coming out, like the Holy Spirit descending. And there's these golden beams stretching out from that high altar. Go ahead and progress to the next one. The big thing about temples, or in this case, cathedrals, you know, we don't have temples as Christians. We have cathedrals. When you walk in, the first thing that you do, your eyes go up because that's where God is. God is holy. God's transcendent. God's beautiful. God's other. And so this is another shot from the inside of St. Peter's. I've gotten the privilege of getting to travel a lot in my life. And I've stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon and saw these incredible works. But I don't know is that anything clued me in a little bit to God's magnificent as much as when I stood in St. Peter's. It was incredible. It was beautiful. And the images and the story of God being plastered in mosaics all around me was something that I can't describe. It was wonderful, right? So we're all about sacred spaces. We're all about things that raise our eyes to look up and to, and, and to, to get to see God as where he is. But the problem is... Sometimes we think that's all there is to God, and we export it to so many other areas. But Jesus tells us that, yes, temples and, and, and cathedrals are good things because they, they give us an image of that which is sacred, but we also got to tear those things down. 
So in Matthew, Jesus says this. He goes up and he's walking with his disciples there around the temple. And they're, they're, they're talking about how incredible this place is. And look at these massive stones. This is, this is awesome. You know, this is where God is. And he, Jesus points to it. And he says, you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be one... There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It was what God, what Jesus was saying was that, yes, God commanded temples as where he would meet us. But now the temple is being built around myself. And then later in chapter 27, he said, uh, I'm sorry, at chapter 27, right after he was crucified, right as Jesus died in the temple, there was this big thick curtain that separated the most holy spot from the rest of the temple. And, and Matthew 27, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. That which was holy was coming present. And then, after Jesus is resurrected, right before he ascends to heaven, he says to the disciples in Matthew 28, And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So here's the big idea that we're working with. Here is the fundamental shift that we see in the person of Jesus and that we now know that God is doing. Ready? Big dramatic move. I'm going to flip this thing over. I need a drum roll. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. There we go. There's a drum roll. Ready? God is always present and at work. God is always present and at work. Now, yeah, we look at this and we say, yeah, duh, right? Yeah, we know that. But we don't live as if that's true. We don't approach God as if that's true. We don't approach our hard seasons in life oftentimes as if that's true. But here, the fundamental base reality upon which everything else is built, the lens through which Jesus looked was this. God is always present and at work. Here's a few ways that we miss that. One, you have, how about this saying, the man upstairs, right? You remember this? As if our whole world was a two-story building and we're down here on the first floor and God, if there maybe is a second story, he's up there and every once in a while, there's no stairs, so we can't walk up there, right? But every once in a while, he might throw a little sign out or maybe he turns his music up a little loud and bangs on the floor with a broom and oh yeah, here, here's, there's God, right? The man upstairs. It's this way that we remove the sacred from the secular, Right? Or, as we've seen in Christianity in the last 30 years or so, we get really obsessed with proving that there is a second floor or proving that there's a man upstairs by objective facts that we can prove this thing as if God is removed and up there and detached from our everyday existence. But God is always present and at work. Listen to what Jacob said at the very end after he has this dream. What does he say? Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And then he says, and he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. He didn't expect to see God there. Here's another way we do it. Ready? We'll acknowledge this is true, and we got to figure it out, right? This is me. This is the kind of things I do. Like, I want to figure this sucker out. I'm going to study it, and I'm going to learn it. And we have big words for this, like omnipresence, or God is all-knowing, omnipotent. And what do we do? We, we turn this into a theological concept which detaches it from our everyday life. Here's how you see this in our relationship. We do this all the time. We do this all over. Maybe you've gone to a restaurant maybe here since we've gotten to go back to restaurants recently and you show up, you know, and, and you see this couple sitting at a table next to you and they're over there and clearly they haven't been out in a long time because it's just them. They probably got their kids, finally got a babysitter, got away from the kids and they are on social media across from a living, breathing person scanning their 
Facebook or their Instagram disconnected from one, each, one another. When we use big words sometimes to try to understand who God is outside of the actual experience of that aptitude of God, it's like sitting across from our spouse at dinner and scrolling through Facebook. We use these things that create a level of distance between us and that which has come present and is at work. We disconnect and we make a distinction between the sacred and the secular. Again, right? God is always present and at work. I'm going to say this a lot. You want to say it again? You want to say it? Let's all say it once. God is always present and at work. So we're going to do this this morning. We're going to break this into two sections and we're going to look at it. God is always present, period, stop. We're going to pause and just look at this piece, okay? God is always present. Here's a few ways that we miss this. Here's the number one way. We say it, in, we use it in our language when something cool happens. God showed up. God showed up. So here's what I want to do. Ready? We're going to talk back today. I'm even going to step down here. Is that all right? Maybe. We'll see. God showed up. When have you used that language? Talk back to me. Y'all at 11. The 9 o'clock, we don't have coffee back there. They really struggled responding. But y'all are awake now, right? You've had your own coffee at home, right? When do we use God showed up? Something good happens, right? As if God was somewhere else when bad stuff was happening, right? How else? Where else do we use God showed up? What's that? Illness. illness, right? We have an illness. All of a sudden we get better. There's a miraculous healing or something. Oh, now God showed up like he wasn't there when things got bad or rough, right? Anywhere else? I heard Tyler spout it off. I don't want to hear from him, though. He told me this earlier. Somebody else? Church. Tyler's answer. I'll give it to you. Gosh, all right, church, right? Things we do for God, like good things where we show up and we think, okay, now we're in a holy place, right? A temple. Yes, this is a holy place, right? Yes, we do meet with God here. It's a unique thing when the scripture is read and the word is preached and we participate in the sacraments. But we often think of that as, oh, that's where I go to meet God. God shows up there. He can't show up in my everyday life, right? God showed up. Or maybe we have to do something or whatever. G.K. Chesterton, one of my favorite authors, this is a great story, was standing on a London street corner when he was approached by a newspaper reporter. The reporter said, Sir, I understand that you re recently became a Christian. May I ask you one question? Certainly, replied Chesterton. If the risen Christ suddenly appeared at this very moment and stood behind you, what would you do? And Chesterton looked at the reporter squarely in the eye and said, he is. Put the reporter on his heels a little bit, right? Put the reporter on his heels. What would you do? Is that something that strikes you? Is that something that strikes you is that we would have a different response, maybe? Well, yeah, maybe if the bodily Jesus was there, right? But God is always present and at work through his spirit. Here's the other one. Ready? The next one under God is always present. I just don't feel like God is present. Oh, well, in that case, you don't feel it, right? Whether or not this is something that he just feels distant, right? Just feels distant, or maybe it's in the hard times. Somebody said a while ago, in the illness, when the illness, like God wasn't there when the illness started, God feels distant in the hardness. Here, listen to this from Henry Nouwen. God's absence, on the other hand, is often so deeply felt that it leads to a new sense of God's presence. When God, through the humanity of Jesus, freely chose to share our most painful experience of divine absence, that is what happened on the cross, God became most present to us. 
It is into this mystery that we enter when we pray. Just because God doesn't feel, doesn't feel like God is here, just because it feels like God is absent does not mean he is. This is not this. Okay, so we, we, we cliche this term in a few ways, right? So one way we distance ourselves from when we feel like God is absent is we, we use a cliche. Remember, a cliche is something that just trivializes a, a truth. Cliche about this, everything happens for a reason. I don't know if that's the case. There's a big difference between everything happens for a reason and, and God is always present at work. Everything happens for a reason puts blame on God for the things that happen in our life. When God is present and at work, that means God is here, and despite the things that are going on in the world, God works in and through it. We have to wake up. Things don't always happen for a reason, but God is always present and at work, even in the hardships. Does that make sense? You with me? God is always present at work. Do you remember the, the, the story about uh, the disciples on the boat in the storm? Jesus is back on the shore. Jesus sent them out, and, and the storm hits, and they think they're going to die, and they're freaking out. What does Jesus do? He comes to them in the storm, right? He didn't immediately calm the storm. Sometimes God uses the storms in our life to reveal what's in our hearts. So the big difference between everything happens for a reason and God is always present at work is that when God enters into the storms that are always there that he may not cause, that something had happened, God can step in and reveal to us what's in our heart. He uses these situations to step in and come present. Here we go. Second one. Ready? God is always present. Now we're moving to at work. God is at work. God is always present and at work. In this way, we imagine sometimes that God only works through the extraordinary, the big times, the big movements. But what we understand, if this is true, if the way Jesus viewed the world and the way, what we hear of God is that he is always present and at work, then the mundane is as important as the extraordinary. When we take and expect God to only work in the extraordinary, we're doing the same kind of split, the secular and the sacred, but God works in the mundane. Hear this, the incarnation, right? The holy, transcendent God of the universe didn't come to us in fireworks, in flashing lights, but by taking on our flesh and being born right next to us. The mundane came and, and, and he restored all this mundane. He stepped into that place. That's why we also understand like the, the sacraments, the two big sacraments of the church, baptism in the water, the most abundant source on earth, all of a sudden is the gateway and the path by which we enter the new creation. We enter the kingdom of God, the family that God is restoring. Mundane, everyday water that we drink all the time. Water. It's how we enter the new creation. Or even, even the Lord's Supper, Eucharist. Regular bread and wine. Regular bread and wine. Things we eat and drink all the time. It's right here. All of a sudden, the, the, the holy is here. In the mundane, the everyday, God meets us in the mundane, not always the extraordinary. Here's the other way we misunderstand God is at work. The last one here. Ready? The primary context for our discipleship is our everyday life. It's not something we show up to. It's in the everyday mundane experiences that we bump into that we run into, it's in the everyday experience. We don't believe God's presence is practical, however. I get this feeling sometimes when we talk about, talk about God and, and all of a sudden the conversation shifts. It's like, oh, now we gotta, here's religious talk. 
rather than the everyday experience of our life is not practical. So I don't have to take care of my anxiety so that I can go on with my Christian life, right? We think of this sometimes. The hard things in my life I have to take care of and figure out and twist and manage before I can meet with God. Instead, I can meet God in my anxiety. And here's where we're going with this. How do we live as if this is true? We know this, right? We're all going to agree with this. God is always present and at work, but we deny it by the way we live and the way we pray and the way we experience God. How do we live as if this is true? The other thing we're going to do is, you know, we could easily get rid of God showed up language. We can throw that out. We can get rid of that cliche, and we can replace it with one more cliche that disconnects this reality from our everyday life. How do we live as if God is always present and at work? That's the struggle. We stop trying to get God to show up. And instead, we train our hearts and we learn to wake up to that which is around us. Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite pastors, says it this way. The assumption of spirituality is that God is always doing something before I know it. So the task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so that I can respond to it and participate and take delight in it. We've been introducing language over the last few weeks. I talked about it the last time I preached. Tyler spoke about it last week. This language of kairos. Remember this? Did you all hear this? Kairos? No? You can shake your head no if you do not. Okay. There are two words for, for time in the Greek. Chronos and kairos. Chronos is like chronological time. Kairos is the word Jesus used when he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is not far from you. This is the idea of kairos. A moment pregnant with possibility and opportunity of which God is present and at work. What we have to do is stop expecting God to show up and learn to wake up to these kind of opportunities. Where? Our everyday life and the mundane. Because if God is present and at work, that is his primary place that he is working. To be a disciple of Jesus, one way we can do that is just by paying attention to Kairos moments. These moments where we bump into things. We, we kind of talk about these as sonar pings. You know what a sonar ping is, right? Sonar is looking for something, so, and it pings an object, right? It'll ping, right? Listen to these sonar pings. For me, it shows up in my body first, right? I get anxious. I get frustrated. My shoulders, it's right here in the middle of my back. I get kind of tight, and I get this knot in my gut. I see a phone call coming in from somebody I do not want to talk to, right? And it kind of shows up right there. Sonar ping, Kairos moment. I have to do something with that. Or my kids are not listening and I'm getting really frustrated and I'm controlling the situation and I'm bending these people in my life to how I want this outcome to go. When that employee or that coworker shows up and comes in late again and I'm controlling this environment, Kairos moment. Something's going on. That's a sonar ping in my soul of which God says he wants to be present and at work in. But we do two things instead. We fight them. We ignore them or we flee from them, right? For me, I control it, right? I'll control this environment and I will bend this reality to my will or I'll try to think, I imagine I do, <laughs> right? Or we run from it, silence that phone call. I'm gonna go to the other room, right? I'm just gonna check out and scroll Facebook. We do these two things instead. So how do we learn to train our awareness for where God is present and at work? to perceive God's activity. This is how, and we're gonna practice this this morning, and it's gonna be awkward for a minute, right? Because there is going to be silence, 
It's a scary word. You like the silence. That's fine. Scary words. Because God enters there. For me, the hardest part is, is taking time to listen to these sonar pings and these kairoses. I'll go weeks and then all of a sudden realize, like, oh, I haven't checked in on what's going on here. I haven't, I haven't really taken time to pray through and to listen and to review my week or my day and, and see where anxiety, fear, frustration, or even good times, where I felt alive, where I felt full, and tried to, to open my eyes and to listen and to hear where God is at work in that. I make all kinds of excuses, right? Well, I don't have time for that. I have other things that are more important that I got to get done right now. Or I, I schedule other things like, you know, a Netflix binge or whatever, because that really is life-giving at the end, of the end of the day. But it's taking time for these things by which we can learn to open our eyes to what God is at work. Here's how we embody it. We review our day through this process of examine that we're about to practice. And here's what really grieves me. I'm going to lay this out. I'm going to go through how to do this. We're going to spend two minutes in silence. And next month, if I were to check in with you, most of you will not have done this. Here's why that grieves me. Not because you're not listening to what I <laughs> would be saying. That's not it. It grieves me because you're not going to get to experience the care of God and the experience of God and God in those moments like he wants you to, like I want you to. It's in these moments that we learn to examine ourselves and to be present to the sonar pings of our soul that we are awakened to God's presence and work in our life. And then 10, 15 years goes by and you, we haven't made this a practice in our life and we wonder why God feels so absent or why the, the church and, and, and the walk of Jesus all of a sudden isn't practical to us when we haven't taken the time to awake ourselves to God's presence in our life. So here's what we're going to do. Ready? Two minutes of silence. Two whole minutes, right? That doesn't seem like long. Here's what we're going to do. Process of examining, you do two things with, your, with, with, with this period. Moments of consolation. We pay attention to moments of consolation where I felt joy, peace, presence, or where I felt alive. We review our week or our day or whenever that is. And we, we try to pay attention. Where did I feel full? Where did God feel present? And we sit in that and we thank God for that. And we get compassionately curious about what God is doing in that place. The other one is this, moments of desolation. Moments where, where, I, where God felt absent. Or moments in my life where I experienced anxiety or fear or frustration. And we become compassionately curious with ourselves about what God is doing in that place. We face these kairos moments and we befriend them as a place where God is meeting us. So here's what we're going to do. There's not going to be music. You know, it grieves me as well sometimes that sometimes when we come to church, we don't make room for this. Our world is so bombarded with, with noise and sound and opinions and conflict and stuff being hit with us all the time. We have to be the ones who are proactive in making space to open our eyes and be awakened to God's presence. If we don't do that, we might just miss it. So this morning, we're going to take this moment for two minutes, consolation and desolation. I'm going to pray real briefly, and then we're going to listen for what God is doing in our mundane, everyday, unextraordinary lives. Holy Spirit, we know that you're near. God, we praise you for being a God who has come present. We ask in these next few minutes that first you would 
ping in our soul, moments of consolation. Bring to awareness those places, Lord, that we have felt joy and peace in your presence. Now, Lord, we ask that you would assist us and open our awareness to moments of desolation where you felt absent, or moments of anxiety, fear, unforgiveness. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit that in all the cares and occupations of our life we may not forget you but may remember that we are ever walking in your sight. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Kairos moments. Take moments to listen, to open your eyes to where God is working in your life. Don't try to fight them or to fix them, but just notice. So now let's stand. And as our Lord taught us, we are bold to proclaim. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the power.